And now it is time for We Are Just Christians Live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie. Here are your hosts, Mike Schmidt and Gary Jones. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, and welcome to We Are Just Christians. We're really glad that you've tuned into the show today. We appreciate it very much. Hope you'll continue to be able to listen till 10 o'clock. The show's on till 10 o'clock Eastern Time. And it's a live call-in show. We Are Just Christians will be taking your calls here in just a moment, I'll give you the numbers, but you can reach us with your calls, comments, questions, whatever's on your mind about any kind of spiritual matter at all. And you certainly don't have to be a believer or a Christian or anything like that to call in. We welcome comments and questions and opinions from anyone. You can reach the show at 772 772-340-1590. 772-340-1590. One five nine zero is the number. I'll give you a couple of text numbers in just a moment. But when you call in uh, to We Are Just Christians, you can expect that we'll, you know, hear what you have to say. You can stay on the air and have a conversation with us, or you can hang up if that's what you desire to do. But we like to have conversations so we can clarify questions and so forth. And uh, we pledge to you that we're not going to abuse you or take advantage of you or you know, make fun of you or anything like that. We're here to uh, have a conversation about spiritual things and want you to join in with that. It's what makes it interesting. So you can ask something, for example, about what's in the news or current events. You can ask a question from a Bible a study, a question that you've been thinking about, something you read in the Bible or what you've heard. You can, you can tell us what happened to you growing up in a church or not in a church, your experiences with religious people. Uh, your questions about God himself in a general way, other religions, pretty much any of that is anything like that is on the table. You can call up to criticize what we've said in the past about the, on this show. And you want to you want to clarify, you want to comment, you want to criticize. We'd love to hear from you about that. 772-340-1590. Now, let me give you a couple other ways to reach the show. You can you can text us during the show this morning or during the week. Gary Jones, uh, and I'm Mike Schmidt, by the way, and Gary Jones, the other host, is we both have text numbers that are very similar, and you can text us, uh, and we'll try to take those while we're on the air if we can, if it's at all possible, comment on those, or you can text us during the week with your questions. Uh, the numbers to reach us by text message are 772-260-6120, 772-260-6120, that's my text number, Mike. Gary's text number is 772-260-6220, 772-260-6220. So get a hold of us. We also have an email address. Some people like to ask by email, maybe think, have time to think about it, write something out. That address is also hopefully easy to remember, justchristians at att.net, justchristians at att. Dot net. You can reach us by email. Some people do. In fact, we have a text message we're going to respond to, a question that came up by text. I don't think we're going to be doing that today, but we plan to do that real soon, and we will um, get onto that. So if you want to leave us, sometimes sometimes the text messages are just something about the show that we can respond to quickly. Sometimes they're more detailed or in-depth. We'd be glad to, uh, glad to do that in-depth, and we'll probably have a, another part of the whole show about the question we received recently. And it was about something we said on the air, so that's good, and that's great, and I, I appreciate that very much. 
you know, when you talk as I'll speak for myself, Gary, when you talk <laughs> as much as I do, the odds are, and I've done read research on this, that you're going to make a mistake every few minutes about something that you say when you're speaking publicly. And a lot of the time, you don't even exactly realize what you've said. You may think one thing and say another. That certainly happens. It's very strange when it does, but it does happen. And sometimes I'll be talking and I'll, you know, I can't look everything up here uh, on the air. It's a live show or even during sermons. I tend to be off the cuff a lot of the time. And so I'll make an excuse by saying sometimes I say something in my back of my mind. I'm thinking, hmm, is there something else there to that? You know, you get this feeling like you forgot something, you know, right. once in a while. Well, I get that while I'm talking. And sometimes I'm perfectly correct in what I'm saying. Other times I I really did need to clarify what I said or that I did I misstated something. And so um, I, I don't mind that at all when you correct that. That's just part of the deal. And hopefully you can tell from the context what I'm trying to say. But we'll um, I'll, I'll just ask your indulgence about that. We're try, not trying to be inaccurate. Another thing we're not doing on this show, and I want to repeat this because we do talk about this once in a while, I'm not trying to misrepresent other people's doctrines and traditions and opinions about spiritual things or misrepresent even something that happens in the news. Uh, I'm trying to be fair. Now, that doesn't mean I don't have an opinion about it or that I would I disagree with what I'm hearing. Just because somebody says something, it doesn't mean that I have to agree with it and, and uh, you know, I, I can certainly challenge what they're saying, and you can too with me, but uh, I'm not trying to misrepresent what they're saying. I've heard what they're saying, trying to be fair about it, and I still think that it's incorrect or wrong or the, uh, the bad direction to go, and Gary's the same way. So well, if you and, think we're misrepresenting somebody, or a particular religion or doctrine or teaching or what or anything like that, you're feel free to call in. I'd like to hear about that, and we'll discuss it, and we'll try to We'll try to come closer to understanding the truth. If you think we need to make a change, maybe we can do that. Yes, Gary. But we're not we're not like what I see a lot around Mike is we may disagree with you, but it's an honest disagreement and we do not hate you if we disagree with you. Which is exactly. which is what society seems to attach that's, to disagreements. Yeah, that's one of the premises of the show. That we yes. believe in settling differences, expressing opinions and even what we think is the truth. You may call it our opinion. We think we're still telling you what is true, and we do believe in objective truth. We just don't believe that we always have it every time. We believe the Bible is correct, what God says is right, uh, and we can be corrected about that, but we're, we're trying to have an open discussion about it because we believe you can arrive at truth and a true understanding of things through challenging and through conflict ideas that sometimes are opposed, and you arrive at something that is true. Well, well there's always two sides to every story. That doesn't mean every side has the same weight, same value, and every side has the same amount of veracity to it. Well, and two sides. basically that's what we're dependent upon. I've always quoted John 12:48 is where our presupposition is coming from. Jesus says in John 12:48, "He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day." I, both Mike and I believe that one day we are going to stand before God and give account for all the things we've done and said. And the standard by which we're going to be judged is the word that he's given us. Correct. 
And so therefore that makes that word very important and what it really means and it's truth. God says, or Jesus says, sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth, talking about the Father. And he said, I brought, basically he said, I brought you the word from the Father. Right. Well, so, now, Gary, this this is what fundamentally, and I know it's kind of, it's probably an odd thing for people of our age to say how, to realize well, how significant this is. But you you and I do believe that there is absolute truth out there yes. on most subjects that can be attained. Not that we've already attained all of it, but we believe it can be found and we believe the way you start, the beginning of wisdom is the word of God. And you find a worldview there that is the correct and proper worldview. Doesn't mean other worldviews are evil necessarily, but they may be incorrect or incomplete. And, you know, there's a lot to that. So so we're, going, we're starting with the idea that truth can be known on many issues. Whether we can find it today or not, that's another issue. But we can keep searching for it, keep finding it what it is, and we can know and understand. We believe the Bible also teaches, like in Philippians chapter 3, I think we talked about this scripture recently, in verse 16 or so, that you have to live by what you know today is true, and you keep learning and searching, and and you will come to know the truth, Jesus says. So anyway, uh, that's a lot of preamble to the show. Um, we have a phone call. Let's take that, and Gary, and then Gary, Gary has something he wants to present. Well, let's go ahead and take the and phone we'll, call. We will. Uh, Jerry, are you there? Uh, thank you, Mike, for taking my call. Good morning, Gary. I was wondering about the Hellenistic period, uh, 336 B.C., and I was wondering this all week. I've been thinking about uh, uh, Mavis. Uh, was, was Mavis a part? Uh, was that a big statue? Or uh, uh, I, I tried to look it up in the index of my Western Civilization textbook uh, but uh, I was I just uh, a brief uh, uh, synopsis of uh, the Hellenistic period and uh, were they pagans or uh, and did it have anything to do with Helen or Troy? I right away I thought Helen or Troy, uh, the face that launched a thousand ships or something like that. That's uh, what I've heard. Yeah. yeah. Well, now, Jerry, can you spell yeah. Mavis for me because I like I'm, this I'm, phone, Mike. It'll be okay. Yeah, can you spell Mavis for me because I'm yeah, not familiar? Yeah, I tried looking it up. I think it's spelled M-A-V-I-S. Uh, and and that's, that's a goddess, you're saying? Uh, I know that they have the uh, the index of a book, uh, the glossary, and then, of course, the prophets of a book. Uh, but I, I, I'm really not sure on the spelling of Mavis. I, I thought maybe you might be familiar with that uh, poem. But I was just wondering if it had anything to do with the Hellenistic period, uh, uh, 336 uh, B.C. Okay, I, like I appreciate that. I, I'm like just not, I'm just not spot, familiar with I'd like to listen on forever. That'll be okay? That'll be fine, Jerry. I, I'm, I'm having trouble with the idea of, of a goddess named Mavis because I don't know of any, or at least a prominent greek figure no, named I'm, mavis it's i'm not it's, a, it's not familiar not, with that one either no but i will say that as far as the hellenistic period is concerned they were pagans oh definitely oh he yes said, uh, and it revolves around at the empire of alexander the great and um the four generals that inherited his yes uh, uh, he certainly he did live in the 330s 
BC, Alexander the Great did, and Greece, Macedonia, his father was Philip of Macedon, who was a prominent figure in that local area, but his son Alexander of Macedon. And by, at that time, Greece was not really a united nation. It was a, a group of city-states. You had Troy, you know, and Sparta, so forth and so on, Athens. But uh, Alexander the Great kind of united all of those, made it more of an empire, and he began a, a, a world conquest, uh, took on a world conquest, and, and did, within a few short years, conquer most of the known world, brought it under Greek control, then died suddenly, I think, of syphilis or something like that, and was taken, his body, I think he was either in Egypt or his body was taken to Egypt, encased in honey, and then later buried for centuries. I guess you could see Alexander's body in a, in a, in a vat of honey. But in any event, um, he brought the Greek language throughout the known world. Now, when you go look at in the in the Bible in the book of Daniel, you will find uh, you find a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had. And as far as uh, as far as the Bible is concerned, hang on a second here. I, I can't talk and type in the word Nebuchadnezzar for some reason. <laughs> I'm not I, sure I could type. I thought in I was even smarter than that. But in any any event, uh, by the way, that that Mavis is a Greek goddess. Okay. And she is the goddess of stories. Okay. And literature, uh, books and perception. And I'm trying to get further into that, and it's sketchy. So stand by. I'll give you more later. I'm, I'm looking. Well, uh, in, in any event, the prophet out in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And, uh, and so forth, and, and he encounters this prophet, uh, Daniel, a young man who's been taken captive. And Daniel is uh, is known for his interpreting images. I mean, excuse me, interpreting dreams. dreams. But in chapter 3 of the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold and and so forth. And so you see this great image it's set up, and he made tried to make the people... Uh, bow down to that, and uh, all all those kind of things, and that's the story of uh, the three young men, you know, being thrown in the fiery furnace, and and then you have the same case of uh, the same type of thing is presented where Daniel is eventually thrown in the lion's den, and all the encounters. What I'm trying to say is all the encounters of in the book of Daniel of his friends and him with the king that turn out poorly involve worship of the king and they involve this whole pr problem of whether the king of babylon is indeed um god or not and that's the problem when you go to chapter two uh, i said chapter three i should have pointed you to chapter two um nebuchadnezzar has a dream of this great image and so forth and so Daniel interprets this dream to him, and, and we don't read the whole chapter, but Daniel chapter 2, verse 36, this is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. Wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, 
he has given into your hand and he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold on this statue. But after you, another kingdom shall arise inferior to you and a third and a kingdom of a kingdom and another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, as much as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything and so forth. Now, when you look at the actual fulfillment of this dream, you see that Nebuchadnezzar was the king, the head of gold. The Medes and Persians conquered Babylon, and, and that's, the, that's the head and shoulders of silver. And then you have this third kingdom of bronze. That's the Greek kingdom in history. Because the Greeks overcame the Persians. Alexander the Great defeated the Persians and established a Greek empire across the whole world. These world empires came one upon another a few hundred years apart in history. And Daniel is prophesying about this far ahead of time that it's going to be. And the fourth kingdom is the Roman kingdom. Because the Romans are the ones that broke the back of the Greek empire, the Greek rule in the world. And the Romans took over from there, and that's this fourth kingdom. He says in the days of those kings, you know, God would set up his kingdom. So we know in the days of the Roman kings is when Christ set up his kingdom and so forth. So that's the the point of the the dream. Yeah, one of the major themes of the entire book of Daniel is this political roadmap to the Christ. Yes, yes. it's, it's It's a political chain of events that would lead them directly to the coming of their anointed one, the Christ, which was Jesus. And that's that's one of the primary functions of Daniel. One of the other lessons in Daniel is one of faith. I mean, basically, uh, Daniel was one of the great characters of faith in the Old Testament as well. Well, now, so what I'm saying, I think, going back to Jerry's question, Helen, Hellenistic means Greek. Helene, Hella, that's a word for Greek, in Greek. And so anything that's Hellenistic is has reference to um, has reference to Greece. Now, what happened here, the other thing that happened, uh, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, the Bible says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so forth. And so what's this fullness of time? Well, fullness means at the right time, at the complete time. And so you have this picture given in the book of Daniel of these unfolding kingdoms, empires, one upon another, great world empires, the Greeks being the third and the Romans being the fourth. And it turns out then that Christ comes during this fourth set of kings, the Roman kings, and the world was right. The time was full. The time was complete or ripe or ready when Christ came. And what historians have referred to this period of time as, even outside of Christianity, is the Pax Romana. I learned about this when I took Latin all those years ago and all those years as the Pax Romana historically. And you learn about this as Jerry was even referencing a book in world civilization classes. I Maybe they teach world civilization today. I know they don't like to teach Western civilization, which we live in, but in any event, that's another whole subject. Well, I, had a whole, this, I had a whole year of well, Western sure, civilization. It was what was required. Yeah. That's why you're so smart, Gary. <laughs> but the point, the point being that at the time, the time that Christ came, what was the, the condition of the world was different than it had been 
for millennia before that, in that there was a general unity of civilization across the known world at that time. And uh, that was brought about, this peace, uh, the Pax Romana, even the Romans talk about this, that we brought peace to the world, rather than every ind little individual city-state always being at war with all the rest of them. The Romans brought, because of their iron rule, a peace to the world, and they built roads across the world. You could travel from Spain to India, you know, and, and all over across the West. You could travel somewhat freely, and you could be at the world was more at peace because the Romans were using an iron fist to keep it under control, plus economic prosperity, relatively speaking, to that time. And what the other thing that happened, not only was there easy travel, which had never been true before. And so people were sharing cultural ideas all across these Roman roads. What was really happening is humans were sharing ideas back and forth. And they, it was easy to do. And one of the things that was shared was, Christ, was this new religion, the gospel Christianity, of the gospel of Christ. And it was something that was taken. Now, you also see in the gospels, this idea of a Hellenistic thing on many levels. We could talk about this the rest of the show, but what you see is a blending of Jew and Gentile, and the Gentiles were comprised in the Bible looking at it as Greeks and Romans, because that was the major civilization. The other thing, and so early, the early churches were comprised of people who were Greeks or Romans, once the gospel spread beyond the limits of just the Jews in Palestine. The other thing that you see about it is that you see a universal language. It wasn't Latin that was the universal language per se. The most universal language of that period of time was Greek, the common language of the Greeks. Particularly in the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. Yes. And, and around Egypt. And so that's why the Holy Spirit revealed the gospel and the books were written, even though some of the gospel writers may not have spoken Greek as a first language. They all were familiar with it, and they wrote the Gospels in the New Testament at, in Koine Greek, or common Greek language. Not the, not the classical Greek of Homer and all that kind of stuff, but in a, in a common way. In fact, so much so that for centuries, scholars didn't really know what kind of Greek it was, what language it was. It was odd. It had different vocabulary than what they were used to in Homer somewhat different enough that they they well, were able to differentiate it enough that they they saw it was not classical greek and some people even called it holy spirit greek because they thought it was some specialized greek they knew they could understand it but they didn't know it well it turns out it wasn't holy spirit greek in it, some special way it was, it was just the common greek language which tells you the gospel is written for everybody it's written for you common people to understand it wasn't written in the academic language of homer in, or the high literary style of the Greeks uh, or the Romans. It was written in the everyday language of the people. That tells you God's intention that you should be able to read the, the Bible and under, understand it. At least that's what I get from that, or one thing I get from that. So this idea of Hellenistic, the Hellenistic period, was extremely important as far as the gospel is concerned in the New Testament period of time. And now then that language has died out, so we have a locked dead language that we can refer back to so we can know based on the historical linguistic studies, what these words meant, and it's locked in. It's not changing every week like our language is in America today, so we can, can't understand it. 
So um, you have then these, oh, somebody texted, and John did, that uh, that's why the Hebrew language died. Well, it died out among the Hebrews because they were speaking more common languages. In Acts chapter 26, I think it is, I have to look it up here, Paul is arrested on the steps of the temple. And the Romans, the Roman guards, the, the Jews are about to kill him because he's been falsely accused of taking a Gentile into the temple. And the Roman guard comes down from the fortress there near the temple and, and surrounds Paul, taking him up the steps. And he stops and asks the guard, let me address the people. So he turns to the people on the steps there, and he begins to speak in Hebrew. And it said, when Paul began to speak, they became silent. And when, Paul, when they heard that he was speaking in Hebrew, the people became more silent. I didn't know it was possible to come more silently, but the crowd completely hushed. Uh, and because he was speaking in Hebrew, which told the crowd several things. He's one of us. He knows our language and he's a scholar because he is speaking in Hebrew. Not all of us can do that. We understand it, but we can't really speak it like this. So Paul used this to his advantage. But it tells you something. Hebrew wasn't the common language of the people every day in everyday life in Palestine. It was used in religious matters, in some formal matters, apparently. But Koine Greek was. Aramaic was. And so then you have you have a the Septuagint being created between the Testaments. In the Hellenistic period before Christ came, um, the Old Testament scriptures from in Hebrew were translated into Greek and Latin. And so you had the 70 scholars, the Septuagint, they translated into Latin and became the Vulgate, which means common language. And then they were translated into Hebrew, which is, uh, I mean, excuse me, translated from Hebrew into Greek, which we now know as the Septuagint. Why'd they, why that happened? Because more people were speaking Greek than they were Hebrew. And, so they and wanted, they it's wanted kind the of a, scriptures in their own language. It's kind of a natural outcome because when you look at where Jerusalem and where Israel was positioned, they were right in the crossroads of exactly. trade from, from Egypt to Greece, from Babylon, what is now today Iraq and India. You, you Virtually when you had to travel between those three places, you virtually had to go through Israel and Jerusalem. Right. And and, uh, and so this became the crosses. And you see this reflected even in New Testament letters, like the area of Turkey, just north of Israel, became is all, was also a tra- major trade area. And when you go into, the, into some of these books like uh, Colossians, Philippians, and other books, you see that Paul is warning these people who are Christians not to be influenced by pagan philosophy, because that's where all the crazy ideas were traveling on these roads, as it were. And somebody texted in, John did, Roman roads changed everything. And that's true in the ancient world. We take that for granted now. Uh, but it's really, it's really important that, that the, the, those roads. And so... Uh, well, yes. I wonder if you could say that the Roman roads were the internet of the time because the communication was, was taking place. Well, they that. were an interstate system and, yeah. like ours, and they were an internet where... All the ideas were being transmitted right. along these roads and these these um, routes of travel and trade. And it's very important in New Testament times. Now, what you see also reflected in the New Testament, I could give you lots of different examples, perhaps, uh, but this subject may not be interested in, to a lot of people. But what you also see reflected is 
the Romans and Greeks and their relationship to each other as a dominant culture, you see that a lot of these households that Paul runs into and that you see this even reflected in the centurions in Palestine at that time had Greek slaves as well as some Roman slaves or servants. Some of the slaves were bond servants. Some of them were in chains, the bottom of ships. A lot of the slaves were just, that was their job, more or less, more like our jobs. They worked for a rich family. They weren't free to do a lot of things. They didn't have social standing. But they worked as, edu- the Greeks, the Romans realized the Greeks were more advanced than they were in the arts and sciences to some degree, especially the arts and language. And so they would employ these Greeks once they conquered Greece, and they would take these Greeks who were educated, bring them into their homes, have them educate their children on philosophy and literature and music and art and all this kind of thing. And so the Greeks and Romans began to share, by the time of Christ, a more common culture because of the influence of the Greek culture and civilization. And it's called, if you read history, a Hellenistic influence. That's the word that Jerry was using. And we see this same thing today. By the time you get then historically after the Dark Ages, the Renaissance comes along and you see a a classicism, the classical period revived. You see the Roman ideas of law and justice revived, and that became the basis both for English law and for American law and our constitution in the the Roman system, but you also see then the artistic ideas of the Greeks reflected in Michelangelo and da Vinci and other people like that, both in art and philosophy, science, all those kind of things. So this Hellenistic period has had a great influence in history. The Bible calls that period of time the fullness of time, meaning that God had kind of worked everything and planned for it to be that way. And we know from this prophecy in the book of Daniel that that's the way he set it up. These great empires were going to come one upon another, each with their influences and characteristics, and that he would bring his son in the days of these fourth kings and set up his kingdom in the days of those fourth kings. That's why Gary and I believe and teach that the church was established after the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the Bible, it's reflected in Acts chapter 2, that the church is God's kingdom that was prophesied, and it was established in Acts chapter 2 during the days of those Roman kings. Not some future time, but at that time, the kingdom was established. Uh, and and it, will, it will be culminated when Christ returns again, his kingdom on the earth. He just doesn't rule in a, the way that we think he should rule he doesn't rule in the same way the Greeks and Romans did. Doesn't Jesus say that, that the Gentiles have their lords and rulers and masters, but it among you it shall not be so. But the greatest in the kingdom, in my kingdom is going to be the least among you and the one who serves. See, he told you he's going to establish a kingdom, but it was going to be of a different nature than the one the Greeks and Romans had, but it was the one that was going to conquer them and break them down. And the kingdom of Christ, Christianity, broke down the Greek and Roman world, destroyed it, got rid of the gods, got rid of the slavery, got rid of all that kind of stuff. Christianity eventually did that, or broke it all down, changed the whole moral outlook of the world. Look, like you're going to say something, Gary. I'm rambling on here. Well, I was, I was just thinking, basically, 
his he said his kingdom he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world meaning it was not a kingdom in the corporeal sense john 18 that, yes uh-huh. yes that that we we look to but you know all christians have to look to christ as their king as their guide they are subject to him uh basically just as paul says i am a bond servant of jesus christ a bought and paid for slave right so basically it's a different kind of kingdom and it my particular you know irony of it all is we see all the left and the liberal scholars and the progressives and they want to change the world and make it into a utopia and if they would if they would embrace the words that Jesus Christ said and the guidance that he gives us we would have the closest thing to utopia that this world will ever see yeah you can't get you can't get you can't get any better they, they, they they're lot. refusing what they're refusing what they say they want, but basically they they don't um, they don't really want what Christ wants. They want what they want, and that's well. Men want power in their kingdom. That's what they want. Uh, they they want power and so forth. I still don't see this goddess Mavis. I see Maya. Uh, uh, basically, media. tell me about yeah. It. It's it's uh, it may be under another name M. N E M O S Y N E. I don't know how that's pronounced, but uh, it looks like she is the goddess of storytelling and of books. And there's one website here, uh, Goddess of Stories, that gives kind of a background. I'm I'm not sure this is all that up to date or what the Greeks thought. This this looks like a more modern version of it, Mike. So I'm I'm not sure this is correct but she has adventures like all the other greek gods and goddesses and symbols and importance and friends and all of these things it's basically uh, a character study i guess in a woman who likes to tell stories okay uh i wonder one, one place I wonder says, if that's the right um I wonder if that's the right goddess. It sounds like it might be something. I'm not sure now. I'm not sure exactly what Jerry was asking. Well, about it that, was it was under the search Greek goddess of storytelling. That's the way it was put. Is there a god of storytelling? And there are several. Okay, she's not the only one. Uh, there there are many mentions. So. Uh, is there a Greek goddess of creativity? Nemosyne. Yeah. Yeah, I see that now. Yeah, one of them uses. Uh, okay. So it, apparently it is connected some way. There's something written there, but I, I don't, uh, I don't put a lot of store in. I'm not sure. I cannot relate this. There, there's no Wikipedia way. article on her as Mavis. There is a Wikipedia article on some of these others. Okay. Uh, and, and and they have a lot of the same. Well, see, it's the word M N E M is the word for memory. Yeah. Mnemonics means. Mnemonics. Yeah. Okay, that's the same word, and uh, that's she's probably the, where the storytelling. She's the aspect. goddess of memory and mother of the nine muses, by her nephew Zeus. I yeah. did not, not. I would not have looked it up. She's one of the titans, the twelve divine children of the earth goddess Gaia the sky goddess Uranus and so forth. So 
in any event, uh, I don't know. She's so she's a real basic goddess. And um, storytelling, storytelling to the Greeks and people in that time was not just about inter- entertainment. It was it an was important thing. Important yes. because you're telling the story of your culture, your civilization, mm-hmm. your family, and you want to remember it. My brothers were, and I were together somewhat yesterday and trying to, uh, they, they, they depend on, for, I don't know, it's, they're more making fun of me, Gary, but they depend on me to remember <laughs> all the things that happened when we were growing up as brothers, all four of us. They depend on me to remember, and they're always making fun of my memory, but then they don't have any, they, they don't remember things at all, and I'm like, I know this happened this way. Oh, well, Mike says it happened, so it must have happened, but, but, but I told him, I said, somebody has to remember these things if it's. If it's of any value to you or your children or your great children, <laughs> I got great grandchildren now. I'd like them to remember things that happened to me and to the people. And I, I remember the people that went before. I remember generations before me. Yeah, that's the that's tragedy that my children will never know. That's one of the tragedies of my childhood is I look back upon it of my grandparents and my I knew very well my great grandfather. Uh, he was, he was quite a person and I really should have sat down with him and wrote down the things that he remembered. Yeah. I, I talked for hours with my grandfather. My grandfather was a storyteller. He remembered all these people and they might say his memory is defective too, but I sat for hours and drank coffee with him and talked and he talked and talked and talked and, and I didn't write any of the stuff down and I'm so right. regretful of that. Now you think you'd remember it. But you don't. First, I have found out that his Kentucky and his more semi-illiterate background, smart man, but Ill- basically illiterate compared to most people. He his pronunciation of names and things like that would leave a, was not. <laughs> well, he he would talk about Uncle Arn. Uncle Arn. He would say it almost like I like he said the word iron, and I find out now it's Aaron. Is the name he was called Arn, and Edwards. Bill Edwards was a friend of his and some relative of ours. Well, he was Edwards. So you go try to spell that, Gary, and look it up, and you can't get anywhere because it's Edwards. Yeah. You know, and he's pronouncing all these names the way they would pronounce them in rural Kentucky in in nineteen hundred, and he doing it from his memory. He, he made up names for people and things, and his own and people in the family knew. When my grandfather talked about old fuzzy face, he was talking about Fidel Castro. You know, he just had a name for people. And that's <laughs> all he ever used. And if you didn't know it, you didn't know who in the world he was talking about. But anyway, he, he, he was just a unique character. That's the other thing. We just don't have unique characters like this anymore. But see, that's where storytelling helps you. Yeah. So I can see why the god, if you're going to make up goddesses, I can see why storytelling would be one of them. And well, she's, a, she's one of the titans. I mean, she's a basic goddess. Goddesses. I did not know that. I did not know this. So Jerry, you've enlightened me about this. if the, yes. if indeed that's who you're talking and, about. And right. Is she's she seems to be related. Goddess of stories. Goddess of writing. Goddess of creativity. Goddess of imagination. Those are all terms that seem to show up in this one article, basically that I see uh, about background, friends, adventures, and so on. Now, whether that's all original Greek history or not, I don't know, Mike. But that's that's how she's characterized. In yeah. this. Well, I would tell you, though, this you even see this in a, a, a passage going backwards a little bit. When you go to the New Testament church and you mention Hellenistic, it's more it's more basic 
there than than you would believe. When you go to Acts chapter six, this is the early days of the church that God is Christ established. And here you have a church in Jerusalem. This is where this happened, composed of from our vantage point Jews, because that's the only people the gospel was preached to early on. Jesus said the Jesus said the gospel would be taken to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. But it says in those days, Acts six verse one, there when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the, the Hellenists. Hellenists. Uh, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, King James might say the Greeks there, but it isn't Greek Greeks. It would be Greek Jews. And so you have um, two kind, to us, they would be, in, in some of the writing in the New Testament, they're Jews. Jews as opposed to Gentiles. When you put a micro lens on it and look at just the Jews, though, this is so typical human being. They were they were divided in Jerusalem into Greek Jews and Hebrew Jews. Remember when Paul said, in in time to establish his bona fides, that he wasn't against the he wasn't a traitor to the law of Moses. He was an enemy of the Jewish traditions. He said, "I am a Hebrew of Hebrews." He was he was he was saying there that I am not a Jew from a big city, and I'm not a Jew from Rome who's been educated by the Romans and doesn't believe, doesn't even know the traditions. I'm not just a nominal Jew. I am a Hebrew Jew. I was raised in Palestine by people whose my parents were from here. I am a Hebrew Jew, not a Greek Jew, who grew up speaking another language and not know the traditions. So, and and we had a call years ago, several years ago, might have been by Jerry. I don't remember now. I, I don't didn't think I, I don't I don't know Jerry, and I don't remember this, but. Somebody called and said, can you tell me the difference between an Ashkenazi Jew and a Sephardic Jew? And I remember the look on your face, Gary, at that time. <laughs> like, I'm like, wow, I never expect, I'm like my own brain. I never expect to get that question. But uh, a, an Ashkenazi Jew is one that is born and raised, as it were, outside of Palestine and not familiar with cu the customs, has languages and customs more akin to the country in which he was raised and they're more they're scattered around the world the sephardic jew sephardic sephardic jew is one if i haven't got this backwards that's from palestine and more akin to the traditional hebrew jews that's a rough comparison it isn't exact so don't hold me to that but i think that's this hellenists and the hebrew jews in Jerusalem, they were complaining that these Hebrew Jews who thought they were better and more Jewish than the Hellenistic Jews, the ones that had been influenced by the Greek society, maybe had lived in a Greek city but have come to Jerusalem for the Passover and got stuck there when all this stuff happened, that they were a little bit more, they're a little bit more Jewish. Than, and you have, you have the same thing going on today among the Jews. You have the same thing going on among Catholics. Well, I'm an Italian Catholic as opposed to an American Catholic. Well, there, there's one uh, thing. You, you understand what I'm saying? It, yeah. It's human nature. The King James Version I had uses the word Grecians. Yeah, Grecian Jews. Well, no, it or does just say Grecians. It, just Grecians. But they're not actually Grecians or because the big deal is made in Acts chapter 10 
that Cornelius was the first Gentile to be Well, see, if you, if you go to the English Standard Version, it again just uses the word Grecians. But when you go to the American Standard Version, it says Grecian Jews. Well, because the word Hellenistus, here's that word Hellenistic again, is a derivative of a basic Helle, which means Greek, and it's a Greek-speaking Jew or a Grecian. One who imitates the manners and customs of the worship of the Greeks and well, uses the Greek tongue. There again. It's used in the New Testament of Jews born in foreign lands and speaking Greek natively. Okay, well, that's that's exactly the way the American Standard Version translates it. The American Standard Version I have says right. Grecian Jews. Right, and that's correct. It isn't, I think that's, well, let me put it this way. You can call it Grecian, but in the context of the way it's used and the way it was used by the writer, it obviously means a Grecian Jew, a Jew who is speaking Greek natively and was raised in some other place besides Palestine. And Paul makes a big point. I am not a Grecian Jew. You people that think because I'm saying let's baptize and teach these Greeks over here, you think I'm a traitor to Israel, but I am a more, he's telling him I'm more of a Jew than you are, you know. But he's not from Palestine. Paul was well, born but, somewhere else. But there, there was a group of people there. He was from Tarsus. Yeah. But what he's saying about that is my family and the people and the synagogue and everything were speaking Hebrew. We were Hebrew Jews, even though we're from what we would call Turkey. Uh, my grandmother was a German who spoke German in a German culture living in Austria-Hungary when she was a young girl. You see what I'm saying? So um, he, they were... They had not adopted the language and customs of the Gentiles around them. When you do, when you watch Fiddler on the Roof, you see these Russian Jews there. Well, should, we should also keep Russian. in mind, I think, that in Acts chapter 6, by the time this was going on, this was before the gospel had been preached to the Gentiles. Well, that's what I'm saying. I, I know that these are not Gentiles here yeah, because yeah. a big deal is made in chapter 10 that the gospel was being taken to actual exactly. Gentiles. The, there's no objection uh, uh, to these Hellenists here because they were Jews. They were just Greek-speaking Jews whose culture, who culturally were considered more sophisticated and modern. Now, here's the, I'll, give, I'll give you a poor example here. I come, my, father, my mother's side of the family all were from rural, rural Kentucky and western Kentucky, and rural Kentucky with very, very hillbilly Briar Hopper ways and language and accent and everything else, customs and language and food and all that. Now, my grandfather came to Cincinnati to find work, okay, at some point in his life when he had a little ch My mother was not even born quite yet. And so my mother was born in Cincinnati. Her brothers were born in Kentucky. She was born in Cincinnati. I was raised in a family then, and she was raised in Cincinnati. She had a little bit of an accent, but not much, not so much like the rest of them. Now, her children, me and my, bro my brothers and I, are raised by a Kentucky family eat eating black-eyed peas on New, Year's, on New Year's Day, you know, doing all the – and all of those things with a background of understanding these customs, but we have – don't have a Kentucky – I may use to some people Kentucky expressions – but I don't have a Kentucky accent, I don't think. And I was not like them. I, I even, in my own mind, I was not from Kentucky, even though my heritage is. Now, that's the way. And yet, when I went to church, when other people, 
I, I understood it. I fit in, you know, to the most part. They might make fun of me. My cousins from Kentucky might make fun of me for being a Yankee, but I really wasn't. And, and then other people make fun of me for being, for being a Southerner, you know. At school, they'd say, you're a Southerner. You're one of those hillbillies from Kentucky because of the way I dressed or the way I, the expressions I used. This is the Hellenistic Jew. That's a, that's not a very good example, but it's like that. These people had come from out of out of Judea, settled in some Gentile place. They had a synagogue, but they adopted the language and customs. And some of them were some of them had really abandoned the faith, and they just fit in as Jews in Gentile culture. That's the Hellenists. You see, because Greek culture and Roman culture were very influential. It's like American culture, Gary. When you go. Uh, I, I watch TV shows that are British and Australian and New Zealand. I watch some of this stuff on this British TV for whatever reason. It's a psychological disorder, I understand. But anyway, my wife and I watch these stupid murder mysteries. And and the, mu- the music these people like on these British TV shows and Australian TV shows and shows from New Zealand and Iceland and all – they like American music. They like American cars, American culture, uh, our expressions. Now, they, they adopt them a little bit to their situation. But the um, American culture dominates the world today from ev- in every way. It dominates the world. Even the countries that are trying to get away from it, like Russia, the well, reason they're fighting it so hard is because – their culture is being absorbed by American culture. And I don't know that that's always a good thing. Don't get me wrong. I, that's why they're fighting up against it, because it isn't always a good thing uh, to make every kid a tr- uh, you know, candidate for transgender surgery. It's not really a good thing. But basically, Mike, I think one of the things that that goes on, one of the things that's going on is the change. The people that can get control of American culture, which is what's trying to happen in our country today, it's trying to be changed. American culture is... At war. Well, yeah, they're, uh, they're exactly. Trying, and when, once they change that, they're changing more than just America. They're changing a good part of the rest of the world. There, but, now, this is off the topic of Jerry. I'm, I'm sorry sure, about that. I'm sure Jerry had no intention of this. Well, there, I wanted, there, I wanted, there was a whole line of thought that one of the underlying problems or causes of the war in Ukraine is the Russian Orthodox Church and its influence over Putin and the leadership of Russia to destroy those influences that's going which on are bring, being brought in from the west from Europe and the United States in moral ways and in societal ways and this woke culture is one of the things that they are trying to destroy and they see it happen they saw it happening in among the Russians in Ukraine mm-hmm. is a theory we're too far from that to see this and that's one reason that they use to justify this invasion and the Roman, the Russian people oftentimes see it that way, that this is an attempt to stifle the influence of Western culture in Russia. And, uh, and other parts of the world see the same thing. They don't want this. Yeah. And uh, uh, so I, I don't know. I'm not saying that that's 100 percent valid, but I think it's a factor. It's definitely a factor. Is it the root cause? I, I don't know. But it's certainly a factor in people's thinking that there are press would never give any credence to because they believe that American culture is the most wonderful thing that ever happened, and especially American woke culture yeah. is the greatest thing that ever happened. And so they're not going to present that view. Uh, well, see, that's the, I mentioned my great-grandfather, and I knew him. He, he 
he was born in the 1870s, Mike. Right. And basically in a part of the country that was part of, uh, I'm going to bring up a different subject. We're getting away from Jerry, but basically what something that was called the American Restoration Movement. Have you ever mm-hmm. heard of that? Oh, yeah. Um, basically, there were four men that started this American Restoration Movement talking about the church, talking about the gospel of Christ. And uh, it seems like there were, there were like four men, Thomas Campbell, Barton W. Stone, Alexander Campbell, and Walter Scott. Right. Uh, they were centered in Kentucky. It was centered. It started in Kentucky and in Ohio. My Ohio, family was a part of that. And it moved into the South, you know, and, and it was pretty big during and around the Civil War. Too. These men were oftentimes coming out of the Presbyterian churches and other churches and going back to the New Testament was the idea. Yeah, they're, they're, the they shared an idea of going back to just the New Testament instructions right. for the church. And it wasn't a reform movement. It was a change. Restoration it of was the first century church. church which is, that's the basis of what we're trying to do here. Exactly. That, that, that goes back to exactly. And my, my great-grandfather was uh, part of the Church of Christ in that area of southwest Arkansas. Yes, that's the basis of it. So you see... Um, this whole, the whole, in, the whole point of Hellenistic influence in churches get, runs like a thread right through the New Testament. And Paul's statements, for example, in Galatians three and other places, that that in the gospel there is neither the Jew nor Greek, bond, Scythian, free, whatever, is a comment on that. That Christianity transcends local culture, historical cultures, and actually is what is partly making you of a new culture. You are a new person in Christ. You have a new family that's not the one you came from. I I think as Americans in general, we don't really have as strong of a feeling for family tradition and culture as they do in other countries, and especially as they did in the past. Because what happened that when people came to the United States, like my family, they, they tended to break off from those historical cultures that their family were a part of. They adopted their new country. And they became Americans, which was a different one. I know my great-grandfather did as much as possible within his ability to become an American. And my, my his grandson, he was raised by his grandfather. My father was very adamant about that. I am not a German. If I wanted to be a German, we would still be in Germany. We are Americans. And by that he meant we have abandoned all of that, all those tribal loyalties from Europe, and we're now loyal to this idea, a new idea, America, where he could be free. And so th- this, is a, this is the fundamental thing of American culture that everybody likes is the freedom. Of course, they don't really like what that means. It means letting other people be free, too. Uh, we want to make everybody do it like us. But on the other side of the coin, this is what Christianity does. It breaks you away from a lot of your upbringing and says, no, you've got to be a new person. You can't accept this idea just because your family accepted it and worshiped these gods and did live like this in this moral way. You've got to become something different and new as opposed to the old. So Christianity is a revolutionary type of it. It's a culture destroyer, which is one of the reasons why the Romans opposed it so much. Once once they realized that it would weaken people's loyalty to Rome and to the emperor, then they began to oppose it. 
Well, it is the same kind of same things happening now. Well, that points out to me why this restoration movement really began over here within the freedoms that we had, because basically these men, as best I can tell, believed that it was the creeds that kept Christianity divided. Exactly. That's why we emphasize if the, the idea that you follow the Bible, the Bible only, well, you're being divisive. No, that's the only path to unity. The only way you can right. have unity is to agree on on what what determines whether something is right or wrong. And if you don't have any agreement on that, you can never have unity. So under denominational structure or thought processes, where each little tribal group has its own creed books and traditions that, that they hold, that keeps everybody divided all the time. Right. We're trying to say everybody lay that down, except only what the Bible teaches to enforce upon other people. The only thing I should expect of you is what I can read in the New Testament as an ex- expectation. Other choices you make, I need to leave you alone about that. Now, that's the idea of, of restoring or recreating the New Testament church and, in and this century. That's what America, I think that's the thing that America did it's at the time. It's very close to American fund, foundational yeah. thinking. Thinking. And, and, and it, it occurred in the 19th century. Basically, I think the last three quarters of the 19th century was probably the center of that. Our Constitution was meant to establish a very limited kind of government based on specifically what is written there. And then you were to leave each the law was supposed to leave each man alone, right? Leave each person alone to do with their life, and that's that's kind of the way, uh, in a parallel way that we believe about the New Testament and the churches. So we got a couple minutes left, Gary. Let's wrap this up here. I don't want to spend the last minute talking about how to get a hold of us and so forth. Well, the, the only other comment comments. I would make is is basically the 19th century, particularly. I would say the middle of the 19th century, there was uh, a revival of interest. By 19th in, century, you mean 1800s? Yes. A lot of people aren't yeah. going to make that calculation. Yeah, right. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay, 19th century. I'm talking about the century that the Civil me, War. The 1800s. The 1800s. 1800s. 19th century. 20th is, century is the 1900s. 1900s. Uh, basically, yeah, that's centered around uh, the Civil War period and the time just before it and just after it. Uh, so basically that flourished in America in that time, and that's what set the stage for basically what Mike and I are trying to do is restore the New Testament church. Same, and you, and you will, that's right, and you will see that we make application from the New Testament to our culture. Part of the way we're doing that intellectually is seeing how that the early churches fit into the culture of their day and how they reacted to that today. Well, our time is gone. But they uh, did they did not give up the gospel. Paul is very assertive. Oh, no, that, he put the gospel the, in that cultural you know, context. Basically, we adhere to the gospel and to what the words of Christ were. Right. Very much so. Well, thanks for listening today. We got a minute or so left or a little bit less. I want to tell you a little bit about how to get a hold of us. You can reach us, uh, Gary Jones and Mike Schmidt, at, at the numbers I gave before, but since the show's over, uh, you can text us at 772 772- Two six zero six one two zero or seven seven two two six zero six two two zero, and you can email us at justchristians at att.net. But we'd like to invite you to come and meet us at our church building for our services at twenty one ninety six Southwest Savona Boulevard, two one nine six Southwest Savona Boulevard here in Port St. Lucie. We meet at ten o'clock this morning, eleven o'clock for worship, and seven thirty on Wednesday night. You're, you and your family are always welcome. You're not going to be asked for money or pressure in any way, 
come and study the Bible and follow just the New Testament. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you until next week. You've been listening to We Are Just Christians live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie.